With Friends Like These is brought to you by Unfing the Republic. I want to tell you about a show that I think you'll really enjoy. Before you judge it by its name, which is not safe for work, give it a listen because you won't be disappointed. The show is Unfing the Republic or UnFTR for short. It's a smart, funny, and really well-produced show the New York Times called one of the top 10 podcasts to listen to in the post-Trump era. UnFTR offers a thorough analysis of socioeconomic and political issues with an appropriate level of profanity given the subject matter. They cover everything from the economics of racism and mass incarceration to indigenous rights and climate change. And they hate, really, really hate Milton Friedman. We also love that UnFTR is not only listener supported through memberships, it's also funded through a unique partnership with a native coffee roasting company in an effort to support indigenous economic development. Visit UnFTR, that's UNFTR.com or search UNFTR on your podcast app. You can also sign up for the UnFing the Republic newsletter for free at UNFTR.substack.com. Check out UnFing the Republic at UNFTR.com. TR.com. Hi, I'm Anna Marie Cox, and welcome to With Friends Like These. This week, our guest is Chris Marshall, the creator of Sands Bar, the bar without booze, which is why I wanted to talk to him today. Chris has been sober for over a decade and wanted to create a space where people could connect without alcohol, whether that's because they don't drink or just don't drink that night. Stay tuned for our conversation about recovery, the key to making a tasty mocktail, and exactly what makes a bar a bar. Here's my interview with Chris Marshall. Chris, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me on. Glad to be here. So I know about Sandsbar, not just because I live in Austin, but it made a huge splash when you debuted, because this idea of a non-alcoholic bar, I think, captured a lot of people's imagination. Uh, and you come to a non-alcoholic bar, I guess I had assumed that you might have been a bartender in another life, but no, that's 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 not it. <laughs> you opened Sands Bar uh, after a career in substance abuse counseling. Yeah. Um, a lot of people think that that's how I found this concept of uh, an alcohol-free bar. And no, it's the opposite way. I, uh, yeah. through my own experience growing up, just needed connection and found that part of my recovery journey was having community. And then I became a counselor, did that for eight years here in Austin and discovered that other people were looking for a way to connect to people without alcohol. And that's where the idea for Sands Bar was born. I understand it was sort of a particular kind of set of experiences and a little bit of disillusionment um, in your experience as a substance abuse counselor that that kind of gave you the light bulb moment about Sands Bar. Could, could you take us through that story? Yeah. Um, the industry, the treatment industry is something that I don't think a lot of people understand unless you're in it. I think a lot of people watch, uh, you know, TV shows about substance use or alcoholism and you hear that the character goes to rehab and that's really the end of that kind of plot. Um, it kind of dead ends there. And what happens when someone decides to go to treatment is this, this adventure in insurance and, um, mental health and how we treat folks with mental health. Um, 
It is an industry that is staffed primarily by people who are wounded healers, you know, who then themselves had substance issues and are in recovery themselves. Um, and there's a, you know, that in itself is kind of um, a weird dynamic. I mean, there's just a lot of layers there. Uh, but one thing that I learned inside the the machine, seeing how the sausage is made, I realized that... Um, <laughs> That pe- Seeing how the sausage is taken apart, maybe that's like the yes, the, <laughs> the deconstru- thing about the treatment industry, the deconstruction of sausage, maybe. <laughs> um, just watching it, being in that system, yeah, was really disheartening because I would see people go through this system with the greatest of hopes that their life would be better, that they would be able to find abstinence and remain abstinent after treatment. And what I saw was a lot of people did not survive, right? They did not, not only did they not stay alcohol free, they also struggled to even live. Um, And there was just a complacency within the industry. Very, you know, this is what happens. This, you know, um, when people don't make it, it's their fault. It's the patient's fault that they don't make it. And I just, I, I, I stayed in that industry for as long as I could because I believed we were doing good. But then I thought to myself, we could do so much better. And um, as I talked to hundreds of people I worked with, I recognized the problem really was the lack of options when it came to connection to other people. And then towards the end of my counseling career, I lost three clients in rapid succession, just one after the other. And yes, you're going to lose people when you're working with people who are struggling with substance use. But the way that three, these three patients died was just seemed unnecessary. And, and hmm. the last person to pass away was a patient who expressed this frustration with being a 30-something-year-old in Austin who was college-educated professional and was certain that they didn't want to drink but had nowhere to go on a Friday or Saturday night. And that person's passing just, it just devastated me because it was, it seemed preventable. I never want someone's cause of death to be loneliness or isolation. Mm. Um, And so with that, I was like, okay, this is enough. I'm never going to change the system from inside of it. I have to leave the system and offer an option for everyone who wants to not drink for the night. Mm. I have so many thoughts on this idea about dying of loneliness. Um, One thought is that as a fellow person in recovery, Um, I think you've shared something like this uh, in an interview, which is that I was just so happy not to be doomed to die that I was kind of okay with not having fun. Like (laughs) I was, I, when I came into recovery, I was very clearly going to die if I didn't get sober. I'd been close to death a couple of times. And so I knew that that was the thing that would happen to me if I drank or used. So I was kind of like, all right, I guess I'll live and not have fun. Oh, well, I had tons of fun for many years. I had more fun than most people have. I used my allotment of fun, right? Uh, and then also, I discovered that I wasn't much of a, as much of a socialite as I thought I was. I think a lot of people who sober up realize maybe I don't like hanging out with people as much as I thought I did. <laughs> <You know>? <laughs> <Absolutely>. <laughs> I just really enjoyed being at places where you could drink, right? But 
that doesn't mean you don't need to be around people, right? I think there's a difference between being around people and community, you know? And so sometimes when I, I think about when people say, I don't know what to do on a Friday or Saturday night, um, well, they could go somewhere, right? But without the lubrication of alcohol, you're going to feel lonely. So how, how do you make that different? How do you do the, how do you, how do you make the, how do you make it community and not just a place where people aren't drinking? I guess that's my. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I think that I've sat in spaces before and felt surrounded by people, but absolutely lonely. I remember mm-hmm. that, you know, very vividly towards the end of my drinking, I would be in a bar full of people mm-hmm. and feel absolutely alone. Like I could vanish from that scene and no one would know. Um, And so, yeah, it's not about just having people around you. Um, I really am after creating community, which says that no matter if you're there tonight or you just don't feel like being there, it's always there for you, right? Like there's always going to be people who want to deeply know and understand you. And that's not something you find in any other kind of bar or third space, you know? Um, you know, I, I grew up watching Cheers. That was one of my favorite shows that should have said something about my trajectory as a kid, um, that Cheers was my favorite show. But I love the idea that you can go somewhere and you can be deeply known, that people can understand you. And that's what I wanted to create because that's what I felt was the missing piece for a lot of these people who were struggling. They really could not find that space where they could be deeply known and deeply understood. That felt safe for them. Right. They didn't have to be on. And I feel like a lot of the social situations we find ourselves in, we we have to be on. We end up going places we don't want to go and hanging out with people we don't really even like because we have this need to be on. And Sam's Bar is a place where you don't need to be on. You don't even have to show up. Just know that it's always there. And I love that. I guess I'm just sort of drilling into this because I think in some ways the thought that I'm coming to is that bars are overrated. Right. Like. Totally, I mean, I, as community spaces, because there is an element of fiction to them. You have this artificial lubricant of alcohol. Alcohol establishes intimacy pretty quickly, right? And that's why people love it. Normal people, that's like, that's a plus for them, right? Because they can also stop. They can be like, and now I have let down my guard enough and I will stop doing that. People like us can't, but... Um, so if you take the alcohol out of a bar, how do you encourage the kind of intimacy, intimacy that makes people like bars as community spaces? Yeah. I mean, I think to your point, the whole idea of alcohol creating intimacy is true and false. Like as you were talking just now, I thought about a confessional of all places, (laughs) weird, but it's a one-way street of intimacy, right? Like someone, right. you you pour your heart out to someone, they don't really hear you. And most importantly, you don't get to know them. And I think that's the difference between the intimacy that we, we feel when we consume alcohol and the intimacy to be found when we don't consume alcohol. When we can really not just share what's on our heart or not share what's in our head or the stressors of the day, but to really listen to someone else you know, and deeply connect to someone else through listening. 
Oh, so just tell me more about the town bar then, because that's what I that's that's what I keep circling around. I haven't been because I've been here, only been here in the pandemic. I understand you recently opened back up, so I'm going to have to go. But what about Sands Bar creates that kind of intimacy again that doesn't happen necessarily in a regular bar that or that's sometimes created by alcohol? Um, I know that you have delicious drinks, so. And that's probably part of it for people to enjoy delicious things is one way of actually being communal, right? Like that's a pretty basic thing that we have in restaurants, even restaurants that don't serve alcohol. If people are sharing delicious things that establishes a level of intimacy. So there's that. Tell me more. Yeah. So I think the goal is the intimacy that we were just talking about. You know, the the question is, how do you get there? And I think you get there by designing uh, the environment in a way that is con- connective and feels like a space of community. So what do we do? So we we uh, do everything a bar doesn't do, a t- traditional bar doesn't do. So instead of having music blaring where you can't hear anyone, all the music is at a nice conversational level. We really believe in that, you know, music is great. We live in Austin, the live music capital of the world, but music is um, a, a side character to the main character of conversation and connection. So we, we, you know, keep the lights kind of up so you can see people. Um, we make sure that the music feels right. It feels kind of good and upbeat. Um, and then we also offer experiences which people can connect around. So our biggest night, hands down, is karaoke night. Um, people <laughs> love sober karaoke. I, I have a story, but shall I jump in? Yes, yes. Okay. Uh, so my marriage is ending, but it started in a really great, our wedding was amazing and we're both sober at the time. And, uh, we were thinking about what we're going to do for our a rehearsal dinner. Like, how are we going to have like a really cool, intimate rehearsal dinner with no booze? We had sober karaoke and here's my theory. And you tell me if you're, you have much more experience with this than I do doing karaoke in front of people. It, it, it creates that level of slight embarrassment like drinking does. You've all let down your guard a little bit and done something a little dangerous. And so it's the same feeling as having gotten a little bit drunk in, some, in front of someone. Do you know what I mean? Yes. I mean, that's exactly <laughs> it. There's, there's a implied shared risk. Like we are all yes. going to be a little vulnerable in this moment. Now, of course, you know, there's always someone, there's always someone who's like a great singer and they, you know, they pretend like, oh, I don't know. And they belt it out. <laughs> there's always that. But but a majority of people, such as myself, cannot sing at all. And they've never done this experience without alcohol. Alcohol's always given that, them that cover to, to do this big public thing. And again, it's, yes, it's important to get on that stage, to see those lights, to see the lyrics, to hear the music, and to go. That is part of the experience. But the, I think the real magic is being in the audience and cheering someone on and knowing that they are just as nervous as you were and they need your support and applause and, and whoops and whistles. The audience is what is the magic part of that. I think it, it, more so than the performance, it's, see, it's, it's witnessing someone grow in that way. It really flows both ways because the other part of the audience being there is that when you go up to do that, 
and you take this not let's you know it's not that big a leap you know of faith but it is one depending on your level of anxiety right the audience fucking catches you yeah right there they want you to succeed you know and i guess it's that combination of someone realizing that the audience wants them to succeed and then what you're talking about which is that realizing that i want the performer to succeed mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. to deeply, that i have that generosity in me that maybe i didn't even know that i had right to deeply root for someone else just because you know that they need that i think showing up for someone like that is just just super rare and again something you don't really see in other venues i mean we do comedy night and it's amazing to see people who have never done comedy, who have always wanted to do comedy or who were you know, comics uh, and have never performed on stage without alcohol. In most uh, comedy- you Talk about risks, yeah, man. Like, mo- talk about like- <laughs> That's a high wire, right? Like you were literally on the yeah. high wire. And to watch people, um, the joke not land, and then the, the, the crowd to like acknowledge the joke didn't land, but still say like, Keep going, like you know, just the 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 positivity behind it is just incredible. I just, I love watching people um, find that net where they're held and they're seen and they're understood. Like, nope, it was a bad joke. Like that that was horrible. But we still love you. We still think you're great. And and just keep doing your thing. Like to see that happen on a consistent basis, night after night at Sands Bar. No matter if it's stand up, if it's karaoke, if it's if we're just doing like a game night. Um, if it's just a regular night at the bar, we're just all hanging out. Like to watch people support and cheer other people on, I think is the secret sauce. That That is what makes mm-hmm. it feel like um, something really, really special. With Friends Like These is brought to you by Helix Sleep. My Helix mattress is still in the guest bedroom, which is why I occasionally sleep in the guest bedroom. Really, the only thing keeping me from moving it is that I'll need someone to help me move it. And it turns out moving furniture is a really good reason to not live alone. I will move it probably when I have other stuff to move because it is literally my mattress. It was made just for me. Helix Sleep has a quiz that takes just two minutes to complete and matches your body type and sleep preferences to the perfect mattress for you. Why would you buy a mattress made for someone else? With Helix, you're getting a mattress that you know will be perfect for the way you sleep. Everyone's unique and Helix knows that, so they have several different mattress models to choose from. They have soft, medium, and firm mattresses. Mattress is great for cooling you down if you sleep hot. Mattress is great for spinal alignment to prevent morning aches and pains, and even a Helix Plus mattress for plus-size sleepers. I took the Helix quiz and was matched with the Sunset Lux mattress because I wanted something that felt soft and I sleep on my side. This mattress and a nice, firm pillow aligns my neck perfectly, which is why I sometimes sleep in the guest bedroom. Also, you know, it's kind of a staycation. If you're looking for a mattress, take the quiz, order the mattress you're matched to, and the mattress comes right to your door, shipped for free. You won't ever need to go to a mattress store again. Helix is awesome, but you don't need to take my word for it. Helix was awarded the number one best overall mattress pick of 2020 by GQ and Wired Magazine. Helix has been recommended by multiple leading chiropractors and doctors of sleep medicine as a go-to solution for improving sleep. Just go to helixsleep.com slash friends, take their two-minute sleep quiz, and they'll match you to a customized mattress that will give you the best sleep of your life. They have a 10-year warranty, and you get to try it out for 100 nights risk-free. They'll even pick it up for you if you don't love it, 
but you will. Helix even has financing options and flexible payment plans, so a great night's sleep is never far away. Helix is offering up to $200 off all mattress orders and two free pillows for our listeners at helixsleep.com slash friends. That's $200 off all mattress orders and two free pillows for our listeners at helixsleep.com slash friends. With Friends Like These is brought to you by stamps.com. If you're looking for ways to skip the trip to the post office and dodge all that hectic holiday shopping traffic, use stamps.com. Stamps.com lets you compare rates, print labels, and access exclusive discounts on UPS and USPS services all year long. It just makes sense, especially if your business sends more mail and packages during the holidays. The post office has never been a great place to hang out, but around this time of year, this year, aren't you looking for ways to avoid it. I use stamps.com for work, but I probably use it the most this time of year. Stamps.com means one less hurdle to getting gifts out the door early and not having to roll out the old supply chain excuse. So whether you're selling online or running an office or a side hustle, or just want to get your packages out the door, Stamps.com can save you so much time, money, and stress during the holidays. Access all the post office and UPS shipping services you need without taking the trip. And to get discounts you can't find anywhere else, like up to 40% off USPS and 76% off UPS. You'll save so much time and money, you'll wonder why you didn't start sooner. Save time and money this holiday season with stamps.com. Sign up and use the promo code FRIENDS for a special offer that includes a four-week trial, free postage, and a digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. Just go to stamps.com, click the microphone at the top of the page, and enter code FRIENDS. Getting back to that idea that, you know, alcohol, any kind of chemical, you know, uh, substance that works on the brain and its emotions uh, can create this false sense of intimacy. I, I almost don't want to call it false. It is just a sense of intimacy. Let's just say that. It can be real. Uh, but I think, you know, that's sort of traditionally why we often think of bartenders as confessors, is that, of course, you're going to tell your bartender all your troubles. You're drunk, or at least had a few, and like you're feeling confessional. That's what booze does for a lot of people, you know? Do sober people open up to bartenders in the same way that drunk people do? Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think the cool thing is, is I give back to that person. Like, I believe in reciprocity in that regard, where if someone's going to tell me about their hard day and about their hard life, about their hard moment. I'm going to be an ear to listen to. I mean, I was a counselor for eight years, right? Like <laughs> Second nature. Like, I'm going to listen to right. you. Um, but I also always ask, like, can I share something with you? Because I want that person to know, like, struggle is part of the human condition. And we all have hard days. We can all get through hard things. And you're not alone. Like, I try to as much when it feels right and when it feels appropriate, you know, if, if it's a busy night, I'm not going to like, hey, here's what's happening in my, you know, you know, hard. This is the hard thing that's happening in my life. Um, but I will just let people know, like, this is a safe space. Um, but I see people opening up time and time again. I see people sharing the, the sensitive and soft parts of themselves because they feel the need to. Like, we, we need that. We need to be able to sit down and say, like, I'm not OK. I'm struggling. You know, we need us. We need spaces to do that, and there's just so few of them left in the world. So, you're a trained counselor. Uh, are all the bartenders 
that stands for our trained counselors? Uh, they prob- <laughs> they probably should be, and they'd be making more money. <laughs> they, they, they were counselors. Um, Are they just lay counselors like most bartenders? Lay counselors with a lot of bartending experience. So what I did okay. was I, I had the counseling experience, but I wanted to make okay. sure that the the drinks were good and that we have great drinks because I, I knew that that was going to be a huge hurdle to climb um, to make sure that people understood that, no, we're still serious about the drinks. We want the drinks to shine and that to be something people come back to. But the drinks are not the most important thing at Sands Bar. It really is about the connection. It's really about offering a third space that feels feels like home. I want to at least end our interview with some maybe some recipes, but but let's talk about drinks for a second. Um, because as a long time at this point non-drinker, uh, if I had to list my top three disappointments with sobriety. Um, uh, not disappointments, but uh, let me let me just think of how to frame this. I won't say what the other ones were. They're a little intimate, but not being able to find good non-alcoholic drinks is a huge frustration for me in sobriety. Like we were joking before um, we started recording that I was going to go get a Diet Coke because Diet Coke is the official drink of like sober Gen Xers. Like that's if you go to like a sober Gen X like gathering, that's they're going to, well, maybe coffee, but probably Diet Coke. And you get tired of ordering Diet Coke in a restaurant, you know, like at a special occasion too. And then everything else is really sweet. Like if, if you're not going to drink Diet Coke, the reason I think Diet Coke is popular is because it has a flavor that's not sugar, you know? And I was talking to someone about making good non-alcoholic drinks and he said, yeah, people lean on sugar, you know? So... And it's hard to get complexity in a non-alcoholic drink. So what do y'all do? Because <laughs> those are this person was a bartender. He, he said it's actually a huge challenge to make a complex non-alcoholic drink. You know, maybe two years ago, that was the truth. Like it was really hard to find a way to build a interesting, complex, adult-tasting beverage, but. Now, I, I I would challenge anyone to say, like, <laughs> it's hard to find, you know, the ingredients to make a great drink. There are so many spirits out there today that are just brilliant. I mean, absolutely just mind-blowingly award-winning spirits um, that are like rum alternatives. At the bar, we have, I think, four tequila alternatives. So, like, you know, it's not just... Um, lime and club soda. There's a lot of things that we can do now. Um, my favorite is an old fashioned. And now I got sober at 23. So I wasn't drinking many old fashions. <laughs> so I, I never, I've never had a real old fashioned. I don't, I don't right. know. What it, you have nothing to compare it to. So you can't say if it's like the, like the original, but you can say but you like it. <laughs> I can't say I like it. And I can't say people who do drink, um, come into the bar with that, you know, that skeptical eye. And they're surprised at how much it approximates any other cocktail, right? Mm-hmm. We can get nice, smoky, peaty, um, beautiful, like, botanical gins that are juniper forward. I mean, it's possible to make a great cocktail that doesn't include alcohol these days. Um, and I, all, I always tell everyone, like, that's all about safety and where you feel you're comfortable. Some people don't feel comfortable with the spirits. I was going to ask you about that. There's a controversy in 
sort of traditional recovery circles about whether or not it's, I don't even know how to say it because it, it's kind of pissed, kind of pisses me off, <laughs> but, uh, uh, the, the catchphrase one might hear is non-alcoholic drinks are for non-alcoholics. Um, and if something tastes like the real thing, you're eventually going to want a real thing. Yeah. And so, I, yeah, I hear that. And your response to that is? I hear that. I recognize that, but non-meat or plant-based burgers are for everyone. Good response. <laughs> I mean, and I, I really think it's the same thing. Like people who enjoy plant-based products um, enjoy them for a multitude of reasons. Some people enjoy them because they don't eat meat. I, born and raised in Texas, eat a ton of meat, but I still order plant-based products because I like the idea of a plant-based burger. Sometimes I just want that. And so mm-hmm. whatever you feel comfortable with is ultimately the right answer. Right. I, I can't right. and nor do I want to be the arbiter of someone's drinking life. But I do believe in ritual and I do believe that sometimes it is nice to have something um, that is a replacement for something you had previously. So people come home and they open up a bottle of alcohol free wine and that to them feels right. It feels safe. Um, we come from myself included. Um, we, we got sober before these things were even an option. So for us. It doesn't make sense. But for a lot yeah. of people, this makes all the sense in the world. And for a lot of people, this is how they're, they're getting better, is that they're using these drinks as a replacement um, to keep the ritual, but take out the alcohol. Oh, I'm all, I'm, I'm all for trying. I actually, scandalously, I, I will have a NA beer every once in a while. There's, there's craft NA beers out there. Oh, yeah. It's amazing. Oh, yeah. I it's actually, I've been, I've been... It, Looking into the botanical spirits and stuff, it is fascinating. Um, there's a lot out there, and I was going to bring that up as as far as like it's wasn't a top disappointment for me getting sober, but that ritual of like ending the day was a really. I didn't realize how much a drink mattered to me. You know, um, I shouldn't say that. I knew how much alcohol mattered to me. That's what I knew. What I didn't realize was that idea of like, okay, I'm done. I'm done for the day. And how I know I'm done for the day, at least when my drinking was under control, is I had a first drink. Um, and yeah, the alone ritual, the not community part of it. I mean, what do you think about that? Is it just like a signal a sensory expression of turning off like one part of your brain and turning on another? Absolutely. I think we mark time with food and drink. I mean, you can have no watch around, not have your phone around. And just by what's cooking in your kitchen, I can pretty much tell what time of day it is, right? Um, Mm -hmm. Same thing with with, uh, what we drink. You know, most people drink milk or orange juice in the morning. And for lunch, they may have soda or tea. Um, We use food and drink to mark time. And I think that the same thing is true for people who don't drink. And during the pandemic, I started a ritual of drinking a a, a whiskey alternative meat. And that was like my 5 p.m., my day is over, kids are, you know, um, upstairs, I'm getting dinner started. Wife, you know, she was doing Zoom on, she's a teacher, she was doing school on Zoom. Um, 
But it was my like, okay, this is how I'm marking time because there was no commute. There was no, there was none of that that usually indicates like where we are at in the day. So for me, that drink was a way to like close out my day. And the best part was I could wake up tomorrow and I'd feel great. I'd feel and the other thing for me is like having, having had, you know, delved into this area of like the botanical spirits and whatnot, which are zero proof. I should tell every, we should, it, this is not about alcoholics tasting alcohol and then going nuts. Absolutely. It's something that tastes a little bit like alcohol. Um, I've heard, I've talked to some people for whom it lights up that section in their brain. That's dangerous, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. and they realize it. I think a lot of those people realize it right away. Like they have a sip and they're like, Nope, this is not going to work for me. You know? Um, but I, I do think of it as more like, it's just a transitional thing. Uh, and also for me, at least the times that I've had them every once in a while, I'm just, I just have to ask myself and be honest, like, do I want another like real quick? It, or am I just like, Oh no, that was good. Am I treating this like a, like I treat booze or am I treating it like I treat a really good dessert? Absolutely. That is a great analogy. And I, I personally, when I do go out and I find these beers on the menu, um, I order it just for the sake of ordering it. Like, I'm still amazed that you can go to a restaurant and get a, a non-alcoholic beer. That just blows my mind. A, 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 a one that doesn't taste like dirty water. Yes, absolutely. Like- <laughs> I mean, it's awesome. And so I always that just I kind of want to name drop if people are interested. Like, I don't know if about you, but like athletic brewing makes really good stuff. Well-being brewing. Well-being. Um, I'm even a fan of the Heineken 0.0. I mean, hmm. I people, some people don't like Heineken. I love the Heineken 0.0. Um, I'm also a fan of the hops water. So mm-hmm. sometimes you're just hot. And that is truly non-alcoholic, non-alcoholic, because some people will argue with you that the non-alcoholic beers have like this tiny bit of alcohol in it. I've had this discussion a thousand times. <laughs> but there are 0.0, and I'm, yeah. I'm a 0.0 zero zero zero. I'm, yeah. I'm one of those people that treat alcohol like vegan street meat, so I don't have any. Yeah. Um, I do serve products in my bar that do have that trace amount, just because I believe in giving people that option. But no, I'm a 0.0 person, so I drink... Um, the Heineken, I'll drink the Budweiser 0.0, and the hops water is great because it's literally hop brewed yeah. water. And it's- there's not alcohol doesn't even get near that. Mm-mm. It doesn't even like kiss it. Mm-mm. It's like out. I will point out that the NA beers that have the trace, you're right. I mean, it's just different for everybody. If you want to be totally, totally, if you feel like you have the allergy that's like a peanut allergy, then you probably should avoid it. Um, but it's about the same amount as alcohol is it's less than you would get in a kombucha. Absolutely. Way less. You find the same amount in a banana. I mean, it really is a negligible. I don't want to scare people. Like (laughs) it's again, it's up to, it's up to you. Mm -hmm. And if you're in a program, you might want to talk to some people about it. Absolutely. Absolutely. But also you don't have to do what other people say and you can decide for yourself. Um, I just brought up programs. Uh, and you were a counselor. And I know another part of your journey that sort of, you know, branched away from traditional recovery. And we're going to, I, like I said, I want to end with some recipes or other recommendations, but let's get back on the recovery thing was you've embraced this idea of a sobriety spectrum, right? Yeah. Um, Which in traditional 12 step programs does not exist. This is true. Um, Yes. I, again, 
from my own experience, my own clinical experience, just saw that it was so limiting to have this binary option. Either you were in a 12-step program and you were, or something like it, and you were doing everything right and you were sober, or you were not. And it just, it made, that made no sense to me. And what makes me sad about that binary existence is that a lot of people who didn't fit either one just didn't know where to go and they didn't make it. Um, I just, I just don't think that that's what we really want to do. Ultimately, I think we were, we're looking for a solution. I think that to, to make a solution viable for everyone has to be inclusive. And so I started looking at this spectrum and started thinking about you have on one end, you have sober serious, which like you and I would probably identify as sober serious. The other end is sober curious. And then in the, in the middle, you have all these different plot points, uh, sober sometimes, um, you know, sober, you know, uh, during the months of, you know, January, July and September, you know, whatever, however you define yourself, you belong somewhere on that plot because even if you drink all the time, right? Like you, you're so, you draw a sober breath, you know, sometimes, even if it's in your sleep. <laughs> I don't know. You didn't know me when I was like, <laughs> some of us towards the end there. Yeah. Like, yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I did sleep. I did sleep. I will say they were. Okay. You're right. You're right. Sleeping. Sure. So I mean, although I'm pretty sure the bourbon was like wafting off of me. Still, still, yes. Still going through the system. (laughs) So, I mean, I, I like to just position it that way. Like we all have. Like it it is, you are at some point having to deal with withdrawal, if nothing else. Right. right? So, and you have to make the decision, how am I going to deal with that? And that is a sober decision, whether you like it or not. So sobriety is part of the question, you know, no matter where you're at with your relationship with alcohol. Um, Yeah, but I just personally felt like the 12 steps were very limiting. Um, I felt like, um, and and I say this as someone who still believes in the validity of the 12 steps. Absolutely. I just saw enough people not get it and not succeed in that system where, again, I'm like, okay, we have to do something different because there's loneliness and isolation should never be the cause of death for anyone. (laughs) especially mm-hmm. people who are struggling and say that they have a problem. So if the terms and labels assigned in those 12-step programs aren't good for that for a person, don't use them. Find, find labels and terms that work and, um, and stand on that and live in that. And, and that's what I found Sandsbar to be as a place where everyone can go. Although most people who come to Sandsbar do not identify as being sober serious. They identify mm-hmm. as being sober sometimes and sober curious. I find it ironic that 12-step programs have become somewhat rigid uh, because as someone who still loves 12 steps, I'm just, I'm a huge fan and it's worked for me and I know it doesn't work for everybody, but I absolutely fangirl, you know, of them. Uh, I do believe that the longevity of those programs is in their flexibility and in their embrace of anarchism, right? Uh, which is that if you're familiar with the AA traditions, a lot of them are like each group gets to make its own decisions. There are no rules. It's the longest lasting ongoing anarchist organization in the world, as far as I know. Right. And you're not supposed to tell people what to do. Right. Um, Also, one of the traditions is we are not the only path. Right. So I feel like it's funny that like within AA, there's all this acknowledge, like the text of it. Mm -hmm. There's all this acknowledgement of like flexibility 
and uh, letting people do what they need to do, take what you need and leave the rest is something you hear. And yet in practice, sometimes that message does not get communicated. It does not. And I, I think, you know, in my own journey, I was one of those fundamentalist kind of 12-step people. Oh, and, a big book thumper? Uh, yeah, I, I will, <laughs> I will, I will let you call me that. No one else. But I will let you, I will let you call me. I'm a huge, I mean, let's make a distinction. I'm a fan. I wouldn't say I'm a thumper because the thumper, for those who don't know people, it has a negative connotation as the word thump might, might tell people. Yes. Yes. means you're, you're really, uh, let's see, a traditionalist, I guess is the way to put it. That's one way. That's one way. (laughs) I, you know, fanatic extremist, you know, those are also words. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Sure. But I, I realized that a lot of my fundamentalism came from, I think, which is with all belief, came from this idea that I had to hold on to it because it saved my life. Mm. And if I let anyone question it or anyone like talk badly about it or anyone to change it in any way, it would change the thing that saved my life. I was one of those people who could not be sober curious. I, I have to be sober serious if I want to survive. And so for someone to to rattle the thing that saved me the mm-hmm. that was my compass I just I fought really hard against that and that's why I really struggled to embrace other pathways because I was so afraid that if I were to acknowledge the existence of other pathways it may um, invalidate my own and uh, it wasn't until I became a counselor and started seeing like wait a second whatever works for this person is the right way oh well then maybe it's okay. And it didn't disrupt my recovery journey. Well, then maybe we need to be more of a big tent. And um, just started to see that other people are getting better in other ways and have added to my recovery programs. And, you know, I do attend meetings, but very seldomly now. It really is about these alternative programs that I find myself in that acknowledge my Blackness. That acknowledge- no, I was going to talk about some other, you know, issues that people have with the program, the main program. Uh Although I wanted to say something about, um, again, the irony of of the ideas embedded in AA are incredibly flexible and giving and generous. Also, I'll point out just as it, I think it's connected, it was integrated right from the beginning. Mm-hmm. AA has always had people of color in it um, in the 30s, which unusual at the time, although it was founded by mostly rich white guys and that legacy lingers. But like in spirituality in AA, we we totally are like, yeah, whatever path you want, dude, you know, whatever you want to call it. And yet, and also literally in the traditions, it says the only requirement is a desire to stop drinking. Mm-hmm. It's not even that you have to be sober, right? So there's all this flexibility and all this invitation in the, in the text, but I guess humans aren't you know, especially those of us who are black and white thinkers. I guess it, it makes total sense that a bunch of alcoholics would not be able to keep that flexibility in their heads. Imagine that. Like- <laughs> imagine that in a world of freedom, like we choose rigidity. Imagine, imagine that. Um, creatures of habit, people who like to have a sense of control in their yeah. lives, all getting together. Imagine that culture yeah. not being as open and inclusive as, you know, they'd hope to be. Although I'll point out one of the most like greatest spiritual warriors I know, a woman who's been sober for like 30 something years, one of the biggest fights she and I ever had was over me being rigid about sobriety. And her being like, I don't know, Anna, 
Like anything that gets anybody interested in the 12 steps, like why would you be against that? Like why would you shut them out? And I'm like, ah, mm, chemicals bad. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I know the feeling. Um, but you're right. It was because I, my life was saved and I felt this, not just like fear that it would be invalidated, but like what would happen to me? Like if there are other pathways, does, I mean, I guess I was scared almost that I, I would fall off the beam that worked for me if I knew there were other pathways. Absolutely. Right. I mean, I think that's why it took me a decade of sobriety before I even tried an NA drink. Like I, because yeah. I, I didn't, I was told that non-alcoholic beers are for non-alcoholics. So I was so afraid yeah. that if I were to deviate from what I was being told, that something may happen. And, and yeah, I think that's just true of a lot of us. We just, it's not that we intellectually can't understand that there's other pathways and that this is a, a broad road of recovery and that many people find their, you know, literally a term you hear in AA is broad road. Okay. Right. You know, you know, like we, we <laughs> We're get, supposed to, <laughs> supposed to think of it as a broad road. Okay. <laughs> we get these things intellectually, but I think in our hearts, we struggle with that piece. Like we are holding on to this thing that has literally saved our lives. And another thing that I, I'm learning to understand about myself is that it's okay to outgrow that system. I mean, we outgrow almost everything in this world. We outgrow relationships, we outgrow um, systems and institutions. And I think that it's okay to, to grow beyond um, the thing that saved your life. And it doesn't invalidate that again. It, it just says that, that I've grown beyond that. And that's where I found true for myself. My roots note of life, the harmony that makes my life beautiful will always be the 12 steps. That will always be home for me. But I feel like I've grown beyond, like in my needs, my need to be seen as a full person, a person with mental health challenges, a person with substance, you know, use history, a person of color, an entrepreneur, like the point of the 12 steps is literally to solve your alcohol problem. That's it. That's the point of the, that's, that's what it says. The, the point of this book is to, right. And it did that, but it's also supposed to, it's not supposed to give me my, my social um, skills. It's not supposed to teach me those things. It just, mm. it's not, I don't, in my opinion, not designed to do I was going to say like, I've, I have some quibbles. Okay. 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 Uh, I guess one is I don't disagree. Let's put, I'll say that. Um, and I, like I said, I've had to work really hard to get to a place where I'm like, you can, whatever you want to do doesn't affect my sobriety. Like do what you need to do to feel good about yourself, to feel safe, you know, whatever. So I do feel like I'm there, right? The first quibble I have is to use of the use, this is small, but the use of the word outgrow. <laughs> I would say like you become mature in your sobriety, you make other choices. It's not necessarily about growing beyond something. It's just, because to me that makes it sound like, oh, that was what I did. Like I heard you refer to 12 steps as like training or labels as training wheels. And I don't know if that's quite how I would think of it. Because I'm still choosing to stay pretty embedded in that life. I just feel more like it's a choice for me now. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Like, does that make sense? Oh, absolutely. I mean, for sure. Uh. And the other thing I would say, and this is going to have to be a longer conversation, you I might have to have some other time. At the bar. Is 
I find that the 12 steps are a program for living. And I use them in all aspects of my life. And I sometimes feel sorry for normal people (laughs) that they don't have this like incredibly rich um, structure for thinking about their place in the world, you know? Absolutely. Cause like the 12 steps teach me I'm powerless, not just over alcohol, but over everything, everything that's not me. Right. Someone cuts me off in traffic. I'm powerless. What am I going to do about it? You know, um, the 12 steps teach me, uh, that when uh, something I'm going to start quoting, this is how I'm a big book thumper, you know, anger, uh, resentment is the number one offender. Mm-hmm. Right. The 12 steps teach me when I'm resentful, I'm in danger. Like, well, for as an alcoholic, I'm in danger of drinking, but also when I'm resentful, there's a problem. Mm-hmm. And also the problem is probably with me and not with another person. And to the extent it's with another person, this is another semi-quote of the book, that person is also a sick man or a sick person. And I need to consider what that person has been through and what their illness or trauma is. Right? So I don't know. I'm just saying, like, I think like the 12 steps, I, I'm down with like using them for the rest of my life. But. I am too. And I, and I will continue to my, my entire life. But what none, no, what I never hear or never seen in that book once is the word injustice. Oh, you, you are correct, sir. Let's get to that. Yes. <laughs> like that's like, that's, like, that's the one thing. And so I guess personally, and it, it, that's why this is such a personal and intimate thing. Like no one yep. can tell yep. anyone, you know, how, you know, they, they get better. Um, but for me, I just had enough experiences from the, again, I got sober at 23 and I had enough experience of just being told to leave my blackness at the door. Yeah. And I just like, and then 2020 happened and I was just like, Oh no, like, we're not going to pretend like none of this is an issue. And, and, and I felt for so long, I've subjugated that part of myself, which frankly needed healing because there was trauma there. And I, I was never able to really fully acknowledge or address that trauma. Um, I needed to, to find a system that, that spoke to that and, and worked with that. So I, I totally, it is a design for living that really works. That is a quote. <laughs> like, yeah, I, yeah. I forgot. Not, you know. and, and I think that I, I find it to be a, a, a way of thinking through injustices as well. Like it, you're right. Doesn't use the word. But I find if I follow the program, I'm going to come down on the side of, you know, social justice. I believe that that's where the, the program takes me mm-hmm. every time. You know, I'm a have some bias. But uh, I was also going to say, I've talked to other people of color that had the same experience in 2020. And I'll also add that I was going to meetings in Minneapolis in 2020. Mm. And a lot of groups had their consciousness raised mm. by the black people that were also tired of leaving their color at the door. And that's where the idea that we have no leaders and we have no real rules got challenged. I'm proud to say the group that my home group survived. I know a lot um, of did. Um, so that's awesome. Yeah. yeah. But it, for people who like, we're sort of trying to code. Um, I don't know if you, this is what you're referring to, but what happened in my group was we had a discussion about whether this is going to sound hilarious to people who don't understand AA, but if race is a quote unquote outside issue, Mm -hmm. is that, (laughs) 
again, people who don't know are like, what do you mean? Like, how could, but yeah, that's what people get told, right? Yeah. And it just, I mean, it's just all kind of things arise when you start to treat AA like the rest of society, right? Like you take these, these real world problems and you, you bring them into the rooms. Um, you realize like, yeah, we still haven't reckoned with a lot of stuff. Like just because we're all in here, we're all like anonymous does not mean that I want my, uh, my, my gender or my sexual identity or my race or my socioeconomic status to be anonymous as well. Like I want to be known and fully seen. And I think that is part of the, go back to our talk, talk about vulnerability, right? It's part of, of it to see and know someone fully for who they are. And I just saw that a lot of groups were just like, we're just not going to talk about it. We're going to pretend like there's never an issue of, um, you know, with race and that we've always been opening and welcoming, um, but, but not. Yeah, I mean, I'm like I said, I think some groups survived. I'm really proud of the home group that I have that managed. We had a meeting the morning of the verdict mm. um, in the Chauvin trial. And um, I was fortunate to find, a, I mean, it's just hard to find an AA meeting with people of color in it a lot of the time, period. But I, I lived in Northeast Minneapolis, which is where sometimes you find people who aren't white mm. uh, and they're represented um, and indigenous people also are in my group. Um, and you know what? Like, I'm really glad that we had had the discussion like a few weeks before about whether or not race was an outside issue. And we decided it wasn't, by the way, that was like, <laughs> in, in part because we, there are AA meetings for LGBTQ people. Mm-hmm. There are AA meetings for just women. There are AA meetings for teens like, if you can acknowledge that being a woman is a part of your identity that should gets respected and is affects your sobriety, then your racial identity, gender identity, all why not? Right? Like in women's meetings, we talk a lot about trauma, you know, like and and trauma from sexual violence. And that's a societal issue. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Right? Absolutely. So how could you, we're, we're not, we can't leave our gender at the door. We can't leave like our, you know, how we present in society at the door. But I want to say something about that meeting, which I have to say, not, I don't have to say anything besides um, multiple people shared that they were worried they were going to drink that day. Mm. Wow. Depending on what the verdict was. And I cannot think of a better illustration of how we should be able to talk about who we are in every way in the rooms. Absolutely. Right? Like, the idea that someone would be told, like, oh, I'm sorry. Like, you can talk about whether or not getting a job would make you drink, but you can't talk about... (laughs) You know, whether or not this mass social injustice will make, you know, I sh- make you drink, whether you drink over it. Like, so I'm also saying this way, like, if, if you out there are curious about AA, you can still find a good meeting. Oh, absolutely. But I mean, and, and again, it is, it is like, I think we're good. We're acknowledging like there are some shitty people and shitty meetings and you're going to get told also not to bring up anything besides alcohol, which I think mm-hmm. is bullshit. Mm-hmm. Um. In the big book, again, I keep having going back, like, 
in the big book, there are people who use drugs. <laughs> yeah. Like so, the second person in AA. Like, yes, like, the doctor. Yeah, like, come <laughs> on. But there's an IV drug user in one of the very first stories, yeah. right? Who like ties up in his car, like, and times his drug use. It's actually a fascinating story it for is. people. <laughs> I mean, this is brilliant, really brilliant writing in the in the big book. But I, I yeah. but there's another example of like where I think 12-step groups are um, a product of the country that they were developed in. Yes. And I think that we have these great ambitions as a country and then these great ambitions as a society and the great ambitions of, you know, of the 12-step groups. But the reality is they're filled with people who are um, fallible and imperfect and, you know, still healing and still And growing. embedded in systems of oppression. Absolutely. I mean, you know, yeah. like it's easy for the, for the old white guy in the meeting to be like, race is an outside issue. Doesn't affect my life. Right. You know, like gender is an outside issue, doesn't affect my life. That guy, nothing affects his life, yeah. really. Right. Or rather, he is only the beneficiary of those structures of injustice. So he doesn't see them as affecting his life. In fact, his life has been quite affected by them mm-hmm. in that, you know, he was an alcoholic who never lost a job. He was an alcoholic or a drug user that never went to jail. Like, yeah, sorry. Just, I'm with you. Like I said, I'm with you. Like, I think in terms of what I, obviously, like, I see what you're saying. And I, my, my hope is that those people who didn't have 10 solid years of sobriety are able to find the place that they can go. Mm You know, that's that's the fear. And that's why I was so happy that the groups that I was at least two of the groups that I was a part of managed to like, you know, what's really funny also is like once we kind of had the big discussion about it, it just stopped being an issue. Like and by that, I mean, people talked about whatever, right? like, <laughs> you know, and it yes. And, and, and people just so quickly adopted, so quickly adapted to the idea that you could talk about um like your trans surgery mm-hmm. in a group and that, yeah, that has to do with your sobriety. Yeah. Right. Absolutely. Like you could talk about racial injustice and that definitely affects your sobriety. These are not fucking outside issues, you know? So whatever a people out there just deal with it and let people be themselves. But anyway, I, I, I will say, like I, I, well, I just, I, I do <laughs> want to say one thing. I do think that, okay. Because uh, I just heard myself talk about like how like it's like the country it was developed in, and to that point, if you want to see change, you have to be in that system to create change, right? Like you, you have yeah. to like you do have a responsibility to say like, no, this is not okay. No, we will do this or that. Show me where in the book it says that we're going to pretend like these aren't issues. Um, all of that, I think you have a responsibility as a citizen within recovery to to say the hard thing, to do the hard thing. So that's why I will, I will always advocate for the 12 steps and believe that they have a role in my recovery journey. And, you know, everyone else should give them a shot. Um, I just do want to say like, for some people, it just does not fit. It will, it just will never, and it will never fit. It will never fit. It will never feel right. They will never outgrow it because it will never feel like it fits. And so for those people, there are a multitude of other pathways and I definitely encourage everyone to find that pathway that works for them. 
And you know what a great first step is? It's just to try stopping drinking. Mm. Like, just give it a shot. Um, and I say that with a little bit of humor as an alcoholic and having had people tell me that and realizing, oh, shit, like, I can't stop. Uh, and that's one thing that might happen. But the other thing that might happen is you might realize some things about yourself, you know? And that's actually the most important thing. Like, just, do you kind of know what, do you know what I mean? Is like, like I have friends who aren't alcoholics, but then stop drinking for whatever reason, because they're curious, you know, because they want to try dry January, uh, medication, you know, whatever. And then maybe realize, oh, you know what? I, I don't like going out as much as I thought I did, you know? Absolutely. Or, or that alcohol (laughs) is playing a different role in my life than I thought it was, you know, like maybe, um, I have been using alcohol to deal with like my kids' homework or, you know, the stresses at work and taking that break is such a wonderful way to check in and just see like, how is this substance playing a role in my life? I'm a big fan of dry January, dry July, sober September. Um, I think they're all helpful in, in determining that. With Friends Like These is brought to you by T1 International. November is National Diabetes Awareness Month. 50% of people with diabetes worldwide who rely on injected insulin to survive cannot access or afford it. 25% of people in the United States have had to ration insulin because the cost is too high. Rationing insulin can lead to painful complications and death within days. T1 International exists to put an end to insulin rationing and to ensure health equity is a reality for people with diabetes everywhere. T1 International is a nonprofit led by people with type 1 diabetes for people with type 1 diabetes. The organization does not accept any funding from pharmaceutical companies to ensure that they can advocate for change without influence. And T1 International believes health is a human right, and therefore access to insulin is a human right. If you or someone you love is impacted by diabetes, visit T1 International, that's T, the number one international, and join T1 International's advocacy efforts to hold the pharmaceutical industry accountable and ensure that no one dies because they can't afford their insulin or diabetes supplies. With Friends Like These is brought to you by Beanbox. Subscription boxes are a fantastic Christmas gift. They give someone a treat multiple times a year, and you don't have to be the one dealing with the supply chain. And the best subscription box is something that doesn't just arrive in the mail once a month, but something they'll use every day. That's why you want to give your loved ones Beanbox. Beanbox connects coffee lovers to some of the world's best specialty coffees with expertly curated tasting flights, perfect for gifting. As a sober person, I am required to like coffee and I do like coffee. I've become a connoisseur really. And like with wine or whiskey, once you train your palate to taste the differences with coffee, you crave new flavors. Every variety is a new experience, not just another cup of coffee. And that's why I love Beanbox and their coffee flights, different coffees from different regions to taste and compare right away. For the coffee lover on your list, there's no better way to say happy holidays than with Beanbox. Every Beanbox order is roasted fresh and delivered at peak flavor. Support small roasters with every sip. Not all coffee is created equal. Beanbox sources all their coffee from some of the best artisan roasters in the U.S. Beanbox's best-selling gift options are sure to please the coffee aficionado in your life. They'll even get tasting notes and brewing tips with their box to help them make the most of their experience. Try the coffee sampler gift subscription for 
new expertly curated coffees to explore every month, save when you give six months or more. Or the deluxe coffee and chocolate tasting box, which is eight gourmet coffees perfectly matched with artisan chocolates. Give the coffee fanatic in your life an unforgettable coffee tasting experience with Beanbox. Order today at beanbox.com slash friends and get 15% off your purchases of $40 or more. That's 15% off purchases of $40 or more with promo code friends at beanbox.com slash friends. So now maybe we can get to the, to some recommendations and recipes. People want to try. People are sober curious. Yes. Um, Again, just going to go back to what I said earlier. Um, No matter where you're at on this journey, no matter what you, you know, how you relate to alcohol, always be mindful that everything is going to taste differently to different people. And people, some people just don't feel comfortable. I, I can do non-alcoholic wines, non-alcoholic beers. I tried a non-alcoholic vodka because there's such a thing. I don't know why there's such a thing. Like, let's talk. Let's get to actual recommendations. Okay, so I would say, um, and and the Sands Bar menu is full of like both. Like there are some straight ahead, like um, we have a Sands Garita, which uses ritual uh, alcohol-free tequila, agave, and lime. And so it's a nice, like beautiful, like margarita take. Um, we have a uh, bourbon shandy, which is great. Uses Spiritless 74 bourbon. It's like this beautiful, like brilliant bourbon and uh, uses athletic upside down beer. So it's got, you know, this kind of bourbon and beer kind of thing going on with it. Um, my favorite, my favorite drink is the first drink I ever created. And it's really easy to make at home. So that's why I want to tell you about this one. It's called the, I like it. I love it. Um, <laughs> um, love it as in Lyle. Love it. Uh, it was a chance meeting I had with one Lyle. Love it on a flight to <laughs> New Mexico. So I was like, if you ever come to Sands Bar, I'm going to name a drink after you. He never came to Sands Bar, but it was such an impactful encounter that I decided to create a drink uh, named the I Like It, I Love It. It's got uh, ginger beer, lime, and a rosemary simple syrup. So it's kind of like a mule, um, but it just has oh. the nice kind of like um, woodiness from the rosemary simple syrup. And it's fantastic. Really super easy to make. And again, has none of those, those cocktail characteristics. So I... I really try to make sure that we we open up our menu and it, that it's accessible to every single person, no matter what they're looking for. If they're like a serious connoisseur of, of great whiskeys, we got some drinks for you. But if you're just like, I want nothing that reminds me of that, we got that mule. We have a um, a drink like Longhorn, which is like um, mango, chili, and seltzer. So it's like kind of like a mango, a spicy mango drink. Um, we try to make sure that we're pretty inclusive of, of all kind of flavors uh, and tastes. Um, I suggest that if you're interested in spirits or what, what's available, that you absolutely go to some of these marketplaces online. There's a lot of virtual bottle shops that you can just go to. Um, I'm not going to name any by name, but just just find just Google like bottle shop online, and there's five or six that'll pop up. Order stuff, try it out. Um, be mindful that. Um, they're not going to taste exactly the same. The whole point of these beverages and spirits, especially, but that they're adjacent and just like plant-based products. Like I've never tasted a plant-based burger. That's going to taste exactly like a burger, but I've tasted some really good plant-based products. So it, it just be mindful of that in that way. Um, but yeah, uh, come to Sands Bar <laughs> and you can try, you can try all the drinks. 
thank you so much, Chris. Uh, this is, I've been wanting to talk to you for a while, ever since I read about Sandsbar. Um, I just really appreciate you coming on, and I will stop by. I promise. Stop by, and then you can try all the all the gins and all the <laughs> like. Try before you buy. I think that's the you know best thing about you know space like that. Um, right. Maybe do some karaoke. Who knows? You know what? I totally will. Oh my gosh! Okay, I will, I will come. When's your next karaoke night? Uh, I think it's the first weekend. This yeah. I'll I'll get back to you. I gotta yeah. All right, but, All right. but I'm gonna hold but, you to and that. We'll, it, and we'll post video. I promise. Oh, absolutely. Put it up on social. What's your go-to okay. karaoke? Um, Total Eclipse of the Heart. Ooh, nice, nice. Pretty good one. Excellent. Yeah. Oh, and also, I mean, I'm an '80s girl. I need a hero. Ooh, another one. Just classic. I mean, Footloose soundtrack. Basically, you could probably belt it out. Like, yeah. So brilliant. All right. Yeah, I'll do. Um, I'll, 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 I think if if we can find, I'll need a I need a hero. We'll do that. How about that? We'll do it. All right. Thanks again for coming on the show. Thanks so much for having me on. A big thanks to Chris Marshall. If you're ever in Austin, be sure to check out Sandsbar and follow him on Instagram to find the pop-up events he hosts around the country. He is at Sands underscore bar. This show is a product of Crooked Media. Leslie Martin is our producer and Patrick Antonetti is our audio editor. Please take care of yourselves. Please.